0: When I was unable realize, I was unable to go to Davis. Could never make it. Um, you you could buy wines in those days. You got to realize this is like '58. For I mean, all the great wines of the world, as unfortunately we all know, for nothing. I mean, the '45s, uh, all the first growths were like averaged around twenty dollars a bottle, and it was just you know, uh, it was a, for me it was a dream because those wines became my teachers, in lieu of, of, you might say, Davis.
1: That was Paul Draper speaking at a luncheon in November 2022. In celebration of Ridge Vineyard's 60th anniversary. Mary B, you and I were so fortunate to be invited to that luncheon and it was so amazing to hear these great stories from Paul Draper and to taste some older vintages going back to 1964. Um, Paul Draper started with the winery a little bit after that but you know to me it's amazing that he didn't think he could ever get into Davis. And now
2: now look at him. He's considered one of the world's best winemakers ever and uh, a nicer, more humble man you'll never meet. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. It was just a delight. But, you know, um, at this luncheon too, we were um, also able to meet um, Ridge's newest winemakers. They um, are two folks who uh, are taking the um, legacy that Draper and the folks at Ridge Vineyards have established over six decades and going forward with this. And we're so delighted that we're going to have a show with um, these two folks.
2: Right. Our guests today are Trester Getting and Shauna Rosenblum, the two new winemaking stars at Ridge Vineyards. Together with head winemaker John Olney, Trester is now handling winemaking duties at Ridge Montebello in the Cupertino Mountains, and Shauna Rosenblum is winemaker at Ridge Lytton Springs in the Dry Creek Valley. They are both super talented, hardworking, great people, and both a lot of fun too, which is a good thing because they've got big shoes to fill. So how do you take on winemaking duties at a place so renowned for excellence as Ridge Vineyard's Well, we're gonna find out today as we sit down with Trester and Shauna. We are, of course, the two Marys who like to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm Mary Babbitt. And I'm Mary
1: Orlin. So Trester and Shauna are certainly artists in wine, but they are also artists in other aspects of their lives, having to do with music, ceramics, sculpture, art. We'll get into that as we get to know them. We're so excited that Trester and Shauna are joining us today. Welcome to Sip, Sip Hooray, you guys.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having us.
1: Yeah, we're so excited you're here. We know you've got busy schedules, so thanks so much for taking the time to come chat with us.
2: You guys have both been at this now for, what, is it a, a, a full year yet in terms of being uh, named winemaker at your respective uh, Montebello and Lytton Springs?
4: Yeah, so I started um, uh, last January, so about a year and a half for me now. Um, so. Um, big, big time veteran here. So,
3: <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm I'm coming up on my one year anniversary
2: here in July. Well, Great. congratulations to both of you. Certainly big jobs. And I, I mentioned in the intro, I don't know how you have the guts to take on a role so big, you know, at a place so important. So what was that like for both of you to be first uh, asked to do this and then entertain the idea? Gosh, can I? <laughs>
3: will this work out (laughs) um yeah sure um so it's it was it was fairly serendipitous i think that you know everything in my life kind of worked out the way that it did um and sort of on the on the tail end of you know we decided to close Rockwall, which is where i was making wine previously and um after we made that public announcement Um, It was about a week later, I got an email from John Olney um, saying that, you know, Ridge had been following my winemaking career and he asked if I'd like to stay in touch. Uh, Just very classy, very like standard John type of email. Um, And so I responded and said, yeah, I'd I'd love to stay in touch. Um, And so the next step was, hey, why don't you come out and see the facility um, and this was in February. And so this was like a four month process of us meeting, I think we met six times before mm. um, I was officially given the job offer. And it was kind of like, is this something you think would work for you? Is this something you're interested in? And the answer kept being yes, yes, yes. And so it was really very organic, the way that it all happened. Um And then, yeah, it was, it was official June 1st and I started July 18th.
1: Wow. Now, Shauna, just for the benefit of our listeners who may not know your story, can you just give us a brief um, background on you? I understand you've been involved some way or another in wine since you were about two or three years old.
3: Yes, that's true. um, so my family started Rosenbloom Cellars back in 1976. That was my mom and dad, Kent and Kathy Rosenbloom, making wine in our basement in the house in Alameda where my mother still lives. Um, and yeah, I was taught to read bricks on a refractometer at the age of three. Wow. And um, <laughs> my uh, my Girl Scout troop used to stomp grapes at the winery during harvest. And- oh, fun. Yeah, it was really, you know, I mean, harvest, I stops, it stops for no one, you know, so I think if you don't include your family in it, then sometimes it's, you know, you don't see them for two months and that's, that's tough on families, but yeah. Um, yeah. So my family was very involved um, in the winemaking process. Uh, and I worked at every facet in Rosenbloom cellars, worked in the cellar, worked harvest, worked in the tasting room, Worked um, in wholesale, did all kinds of stuff. Um, And then kind of went off on my own because, you know, it's when you're doing something with your family business, your whole life. Uh, For me, the reaction was, I definitely don't want to do that. Uh, So I I got a full ride scholarship to CCAC, California College of Arts and Crafts, um, where I pursued my undergraduate degree in ceramics and then continued and pursued my master's degree in sculpture. Um, and during that time, I worked at the winery, You know, the whole time, I, that was always a job I had. Um, but I took a class called Clay and Glaze Techniques, which was a chemistry class that applied the chemistry of glaze making to ceramics and to sculpture. And I was sitting there and I had made my control glaze and I had my 20 cups of my control glaze and I'm making additions to each cup and writing down what I'd put in there and testing it out on my little test uh, test strips. And I had an epiphany moment where I realized, I was like, this is the exact same process <laughs> as blending wine. Yeah. and And it took that application of sort of art and chemistry and me seeing that it was a fine art for me to realize that winemaking was art. And so that really kind of got me interested uh, in the process. I wanted to know why, why do we do this? Mm -hmm. Um, So that was really how I fell in love with winemaking. And then in 2008, my family sold Rosenblum Cellars and the same year, we started Rockwall, and this is a, a very abridged version of this story. But um, yeah, so 2008 was my first vintage as winemaker at Rockwall, and um, yeah, there's there's more backstory here that we can maybe cover uh, later in the segment. But yeah, that's that's in a nutshell. That's that's what happened.
1: And one thing I have to throw in that I read, is it true that when one of your jobs when you were younger with Rosenbloom Cellars was emptying the spit buckets from the tasting room?
3: Absolutely true. And this is and, from like a very young age when I could barely carry a bucket.
1: Wow. And that <laughs> you had an encounter with Paul Draper, if I'm not
2: mistaken.
3: Yeah, so so back in the day, you know, they would do the the three R, the infamous three R blend for Zap, which was of course Rosenbloom, Ravenswood, and Ridge. And you know, when they were doing those blends, I would be at the winery and I'd be emptying their spit buckets. So yeah, (laughs) I met Paul Draper and Joel Peterson as a child and you know, encountered these people throughout, um, you know, my, my younger years. Um, and they were, you know, I didn't know who they were. They were just
2: dudes. They were just right, people, right. you know? <laughs> well, and that's truly how they, they have carried themselves. They're just dudes, just guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <so> humble. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's really, I mean, certainly it seems uh, destined to be with the, the parallels between chemistry and art and winemaking. It's just all, it's very serendipitous. It's lovely. So, um, all right, Trester, you're up to bat. Um, <laughs> tell us how you got into this whole thing and then how it feels to be taken on this job at a uh, Montebello.
4: Yeah. Uh, for me, a little bit serendipitous as well. Um, and also fairly organic. Um, however, it was a little bit of, uh, a fate, I suppose. Um, uh, for me, you know, one day I remember it was in late October and I had just finished uh, with the last of our fruit. I was winemaking at Robert Bialy at the time. And uh, we just finished harvest and my phone rang late afternoon and I didn't recognize the number. So I nearly avoided the call as I usually do in that case. But for some reason, I decided to answer an unknown number. And I'm glad I did because it was a recruiter on the line saying, hey, we um, we know of a winemaking position that matches your skills pretty well. And uh, um, they wanted us to reach out to you and we wanted to see if you might be interested in winemaking at Ridge Vineyards. And I immediately got excited. Um, but it's funny because my first thought was Lenten Springs because here I'm making Zinfandels uh, at the time. I hadn't made Cabernet in years, in 10 years. And so I didn't. I never even gave Montebello a, a, a thought. Um, I just instantly thought they were assumed it was Lynn Springs. And then she starts describing the job and she says something about the mountain drive and you know, would I be willing to relocate? And then I started to put two and two together and said, wait a minute, are you talking about Montebello?
0: Whoa.
4: And <laughs> yes, and uh, so I said, oh yes, um, you can go ahead and put my name in the hat for that one. <laughs> I had to try not to act too excited, but why not? Right. Um, and yeah, because of that and with that came a lot of, uh, uh, thoughts, um, you know, can I actually do this? Should I do this? Um, can I fill these shoes? Um, you know, it's a lot and, um, but how could I not, I mean, if they're gonna, if they're gonna look at me, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to find out what the deal is. And I did. And just like Shauna, it was uh, quite the process. I I think I met um, with multiple um, executives over five different interviews over the course of several months. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't call it grueling. It was very natural. um, But there's just a lot to a lot to know. And they also want to make sure they're getting the right person. So um, but it included everything from uh, blind tastings to. a lot of uh, discussion about wine making, wine styles. Um, I know John was uh, very adamant about, um, you know, making sure that my palate was the right fit for this type of wine. And so we would taste examples and talk about them and um, which is fun for me. All, that, none of that was intimidating. It was very uh, exciting. and uh, And sure enough, I actually got the offer and, uh, and by then I was more than ready. I, I couldn't believe it. I, I was a yes all the way. And, uh, and here we are. Oh, that's so great. That's
1: fantastic. And trust can you just give us a little bit of your background? You mentioned serendipity that, um, there's also something a little bit serendipitous having to do with your mother and, um, Ridge and a, a certain tasting in Paris.
4: Yes. Yeah. Um, so you know, I grew up in Napa, uh, Napa Valley in the town of Napa. And um, my mother was in the wine industry uh, when I was a child. Um, she worked on the hospitality side of things and in the administrative side of things. Um, and she was Warren Minarski's personal assistant uh, during the uh, the great uh, French tasting, uh, competition tasting. And, um, so I remember just a lot of excitement, a lot of parties, a lot of, um, adult excitement. I didn't know exactly what it all meant, but I do remember a lot of events, a lot of wine tastings, a lot of very happy people and seeing my mom so excited was, was very fun. And she always, as I, as I started to grow into teenage years She always wanted me to get into the wine industry in some form or another because she loved it so much. And uh, so when I turned 16, she was friends with Bill Cavan, the owner of Tula Cave uh, Winery, which is in Coombsville in Napa Valley. And she um, convinced him to hire me as a cellar rat. And uh, so I found myself, you know, doing glorious jobs, not quite as glorious as emptying spit buckets out, but I did. (laughs) I did uh, clean out my fair share of uh, drains on my hands and knees, and uh, pull a lot of hoses, and get inside of a lot of tanks, and scrub tartrates, and all the fun things like that. So, so that's how I started, um, thanks to my mother, and um, and I just loved it from the moment I started. Just the way it smelled in the cellar, um, the 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 atmosphere. And um, and knowing that I didn't have to work at McDonald's like the rest of my other friends it was it
3: was
1: <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, and I just want to add for our some of our listeners who may not know, but um, the tasting we're talking about in Paris was the Paris tasting of 1976, where Stags Leap Wine Cellars, where Warren Winarski was the winemaker, um, won his his red wine bested all the Bordeaux's. And um, Ridge was also a participant, or not knowing, but they were one of the wines that was included in the blind tasting, and Ridge fared very well and continues to fare very well in recreations of the Paris tasting decades later. So I just wanted to kind of tie that in.
2: Yeah, that was probably the thing that really put Ridge on the map and had the whole world take notice. And I think what's so astounding to me is that Ridge has continued to um, impress, like not rest on any of those laurels, but really um, strive for excellence and get there vintage after vintage. And that's why I mentioned it being such an intimidating place to go to work. But I I guess I want to know from you guys what you saw in what they're doing and what you thought you could bring to the table. Like, is this a place where you're going to be following the pattern or will you be also bringing your own ideas and uh, innovations in? How do you feel like you'll... um, Manage the reputation of Ridge with your own ambitions or personal tastes or styles.
3: Right, I think I think both Trust and I. Um, I think our number one priority is maintaining what Ridge has created over the past sixty years. So, really learning from John Olney and from Paul, the ways that Ridge has made wine, the strategies that Ridge has utilized to create the incredible wines and the consistency over the years. Um, and then I think, you know, after learning all of those things, there is an opportunity to say like, hey, we'd like to play with some Falangina or, you know, you know, some such varietal that maybe isn't a traditional Ridge varietal. But I think, you know, Ridge is open to, you know, moving moving into the future Um, with some some innovations that are pretty exciting. Um, But yeah, for me, I mean, I've been Ridge adjacent my whole life. Um, So watching Ridge, watching Ridge as kind of a leader in the industry and just just really always admiring the way that Ridge does things. I mean, from ingredient labeling to organic farming to you know, they don't always do things the easy way, but they do things the right way for people and for the planet. And, um, you know, my, it's interesting. I, I, when I was first interviewing John and I, I started talking about core values and he was like, Oh, do you know about our core values? And I was having this whole conversation and unbeknownst to me, there's this whole series of core values that Ridge espouses, we have on our website and they, they aligned and it was just like, yes, yes to all of this. It's just, it's just good. It's good for ball. If you know that saying, it's just good, you know,
1: that's, that's great. That's cool. And um, Sean, since you mentioned Falangina, um, we asked you all to send us a couple of wines that help tell Ridges stories, but also your stories. And so the first one um, we want to talk about is Alder Springs, and it's a white blend. And um, just tell us a little bit about it.
3: Um, Yeah, so the Alder Springs comes from the Alder Springs Vineyard. Um, So up in Mendocino, high elevation vineyard, about 12 miles in from the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, surrounded by gigantic redwood trees. Um, and the Falanghina and Vermentino are parcel mates. Um, there was some frost that hit, and due to the different, um, the different basically speeds at which the grapes were ripening, um, the Falanghina was affected more than the Vermentino. So in the 2022, um, we have a lot of Vermentino. It's uh, primarily Vermentino. Um, with a little bit of Falangina, and it was a really fun wine to make. Um, not only are the varietals fun to just say, uh, Falangina <laughs> and Vermentino, um, but they they really are quite complementary, and I'd never made either Falangina nor Vermentino before, but I have made you know, Fiano and Coda de Volpe mm-hmm. and Greco de Tufo and all of these kind of esoteric Italian varieties. So it's, um, it was a lot of fun for me. That's sort of my happy place is like the experimental zone.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so getting to do all of this really wonderful sort of structured fermentation and then John going, here's some Falangina and Vermentino, have at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was sort of a, a fun little extra that I got to play with. Uh, well, it's all stainless steel, no no oak, um, and yeah, just really wanted to capture the primary fruit and then get it in bottle ASAP so we could enjoy it this summer. It
1: certainly is a fun wine to drink, you know, and it, it's so, so floral and so aromatic, and I know that comes a lot from the Vermentino. Um, it's just zippy and zesty, and you feel this really great vibe going through it.
2: All right, glad to hear mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And um, what do you love about it, Shauna?
3: Um, I think everything you guys just said, I love the acidity. I love the floral notes. I love how how clean and uh, but also layered the wine is. Um, And I love that you can pick it out as a Ridge wine, even though for me, one of the staples of Ridge is really the selection of Coopers that we use for our American Oak program because we use American Oak. Uh, so for me, that's always been a staple of being able to identify Ridge blind is the Oak profile. And so for me, it's pretty incredible that this smells and tastes like a Ridge wine entirely based on the native yeast fermentation profile, you know, without any Oak, um, yeah. affecting it at all. So I, I am fascinated by it and I'm definitely enjoying drinking. It. It's almost too yummy <laughs> I opened a bottle and half of it was gone. I was like, oh <laughs> it's really good.
2: Well, congratulations on that. And um, you know, being able to branch out
0: Thank in this, you. you're
2: you're still young at the job. So that's really cool to be able to bring something like this on board. And I'm sure John and Paul were really thrilled with the results too. And Trester, what do you think?
4: I'm thrilled with the results as we speak because i you <laughs> here sipping it as, as we are talking and it's, it's lovely. Yeah. Um, it's just, yeah. It's if you hadn't told me, Shauna, that, it that there were no Oak, there was no Oak in this. I wouldn't have believed it because I, it just, it has this layers, like you said, but in the nose, it's got this um, a little bit of richness. It's like this Greek yogurt, um, key lime, peach, white flowers, Um, and you expect it to be kind of rich and when it hits your palate it just pops with zest and is like you said very clean and it's super mouth-watering i'm I'm trying not to bleak as i'm talking right now but (laughs) very very
1: Um, a question for both of you do you remember what your first glass of ridge wine ever was or the first bottle you may have purchased
4: i do i without a doubt i'll never forget it um the first uh, taste of Ridge wine I ever had was the Montebello. Um, I think it was a 2009. Um, and I was, I was probably in my mm, mid, mid twenties and was at a wine bar in Napa downtown. And they, it was the kind of bar that had multiple wines that were being served. And they, they had this sign behind the bar that said Ridge Montebello by the glass special, they, you hardly ever see that wine by the glass. And it was an opportunity to taste it. And since at that time, I couldn't afford to buy a bottle of Montebello, I thought, whoa, what a, what a great chance to, to check this out. And actually, I'm getting a little ahead of myself because everybody was making such a big deal about this thing that I had to say, well, I didn't even know what it was. In all honesty, I had to say, "Well, what's the big deal about that wine? And then, oh, you got to try it. You got to try it. So I did, and my mind was blown, <laughs> and uh, and because of that, I'll never forget that, um, that was my first taste of Montebello, and of Ridge, ever, so from that second on, not only was I a Montebello fan, but just a Ridge fan, I started to see the labels, started trying all the other wines, and just sold just like that.
2: Oh, I mean, what a place to start, right at the top mm-hmm. there. I might have mentioned this to you guys at that luncheon, but um, my husband and I have four children, and- when each child was born, Chuck brought a bottle of Montebello, Ridge Montebello to mm. the hospital, and we would drink it out of a little Dixie cup that was our <laughs> celebration, you know, <laughs> oh, like, I love we've that. got another wow. we'd have little, little sips of um, Mont- Ridge Montebello in the hospital and anyone who came to visit got a little Dixie of <laughs> Montebello.
3: <laughs> Oh, I love but, that. Yeah. Well, Mary, I, you and I sat together at that event. Didn't you say you used to live on Montebello I Mountain? I did.
2: Yeah, yeah, we used to live on, on the mountain and we sold Chardonnay grapes to Ridge back in the day. And uh, it was a really I, such a special relationship. It's such a special place. And I think my favorite thing was the harvest parties because I saw that it wasn't just um oh, mucky mucks and fancy people and all that. It was the harvest parties were really for the, um, the people who worked in the fields and who were working in the vineyards and um, really celebrating what they bring to Ridge. And I think it speaks to the integrity of Ridge. And um, just, I always loved how here's this renowned, world renowned place and everybody's just so down to earth and nice, just very, very special. Right, right. Yeah. I agree.
1: Well, speaking of Chardonnay. Oh, wait, oh, wait.
2: We didn't get to hear Shauna's first wine.
1: Oh yeah, um, sorry.
2: Yeah, we'll
1: no, I, sorry. Um,
3: I I was thinking it it must have been like a 93 or 94 Litten Springs, something mm. like that. Well, how um, perfect. It, I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're
2: making it. I know.
3: I, I love that Trust you tried Montebello and I tried Litton Springs. <laughs> That's just amazing, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Total kismet. Yeah. So um Trest, or one of the wines we have representing you is, there's two chardonnays we'll talk about the um, estate chardonnay the 2021 first
4: yes um i've got it here in front of me i just poured a glass um and this is fun because i'm looking at the back label and i see a tg at the bottom and like yes. that, that just fills me with joy this was one of the very first ones as white I, the grenache blanc was the first one that i wrote and this i believe this was the second so um it's fun to see it out now in in the physical world um very cool so um but a a lovely wine this 21 is just a great example of of what the chardonnay can do up on the mountain here it really tastes like limestone and it really tastes like the mountain it's got this it you know the estate chardonnay always has this um, um there's a slight bit of a reduction on the nose which is actually a layer of complexity. It's not. It's not something that is offensive at all. It actually just adds another layer of complexity to the aromas. Which is, the list is a mile long. There's so much going on in this wine. Um,
3: I I agree, and I um, I do have to. Um, I do have to say, I'm probably the largest purchaser of this particular wine. <laughs> like the 21 estate Chardonnay <laughs> is my low key, very favorite wine. Like I wow. love it so much.
2: Bravo. That's so, That's so yeah. cool.
3: Um, but <laughs> Truss is right. Like that layer of reduction, there's like, there's almost like an oatmeal cookie note, uh, in that reductive, um, mm. that reductive note that just, it, it's almost like a protective layer and then as you you know infuse oxygen and swirl the wine around in the glass it just opens up and just screams limestone and all of the beautiful complex things that happen with Mm -hmm. limestone yeah Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah this wine i found to just be so aromatic for chardonnay and i got lots of like acacia and linden flower on the nose and um the acids just it's so fresh incredibly fresh and just such a long long finish
4: yeah it's really um the trick with this wine is to keep all of that which we just talked about in in the front um in other words not not over oaking this and making it um, something that it shouldn't be. It's it's you know the whole philosophy in general with all the wines are you know very minimal interaction. But with the whites especially, there's definitely a fine line um, where if you were to over oak these, the, a lot of that would be lost. And so um, this wine tends to be um, about it's on average about eighteen percent um, new oak, um, which is you know it's it's not really low, but it's definitely not a high percentage. It's Um,
3: conservative, you know? Yeah.
4: It's that, it's right at that line, you know, where you're, you're emphasizing the fruit and lifting it and not covering it. Um, So that works well. And like, you know, Shauna said, a lot of that oak um, is American oak. There's just about 10% that's French. Um, The rest of it is mostly neutral American. Um, And that's where you get that even though this wine is very bright and and uh, has that acid that that carries it through, it's got um, it's got some viscosity and mouthfeel from the surly uh, aging and bâtonnage uh, stirring of the leaves um, during the aging, and so that just all balances it out really well.
1: I want to note um, that Ridge labels are very special because on the backside there's a story about the wine that's written by the winemaker. Paul Draper wrote these for years and years. And then John Olney, um, who also joined him in winemaking, wrote them too. But um, on this bottle, at the end of the description are the initials SR. So Sean, I believe that's you.
3: Yes, Ooh. it is. And it's honestly, that's such an honor. I mean, I know trust feels the same way. I mean, Tress and I are the fourth and fifth people in the history of Ridge to have our initials on the back of the bottle. So that's, I mean, it's really quite an honor.
2: You know, we actually have some audio from Paul Draper at that anniversary luncheon, where he actually talks about the art of writing those Ridge labels.
0: You know, we tried all these years to really to write well, and in a sense to write what amounts to a haiku of trying to get in, and of course not tell people, that this is good with roast beef, or this is good, you know. But I mean, to actually describe what happened in the village and why the wine is the way it is, and a few words about that.
2: Okay, so Paul Draper called it a haiku. I'm curious how you guys go about writing your own version of those legendary Ridge labels.
4: Um, well, I can take this label for, uh, for a, an example. I mean, we usually, there's kind of a little bit of a, a recipe or a flow chart with the labels and it usually starts with talking about what happened that vintage why does this 21 taste like it does well let's talk about how much rainfall was there that year when did the heat spike hit Um, we can talk about the general growing season Um, and then from there we go um, into kind of like when it was harvested and how long harvest lasts Lasted and then, and then a little bit of, about the winemaking after that, um, you know, a whole cluster press barrel fermented, Surly's aged, we talk about that. And then we talk about at the very end, um, what gives this wine its uniqueness um, and, and a little bit of a descriptor. And then we end with, um, we always end with our prediction on how long the wine will age. And we think that that just kind of summarizes a little bit of everything that people would want to know. And you can dig as deep as you want if you go on the website or call us or whatever, but that just gives you a nice broad picture of the whole story.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And right. I love the fact that you include how long you think it'll age. That's really helpful. I, I find as a consumer, that's just, that's info I want to know and wouldn't just naturally know by otherwise looking at the bottle or.
4: Yeah, it's it's great. Bottle. But one thing about that, and this is a funny story because when I was, uh, I was starting to write the Montebello uh, label and uh, looked through some old labels to see, you know, get some examples of what Paul used to write and such. And I think it was one of the, um, the late 90s nin- uh, or the mid 90s uh, Montebello's. And on, at the very end, he wrote, um, should last five years. <laughs> <laughs> 30, you know, 40 years later and the wine is singing. So um, I think that, you know, even Paul was deceived by the length and the, of the life of these wines. And so now I think we have a little bit better idea of where we're going when we predict these things. But it goes to show we don't always know.
1: Yeah, right. it, it 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 is an art, isn't it, in writing and all that. Um, and Shauna, what about for you? How is the label writing process for you?
3: Yeah, so you know what Trust described as kind of the the format um, for writing labels. That's it was very helpful. Uh, there's also a few things that we do and do not do. So we never speak in the first person on the back label. You'll never see I used. Mm-hmm. Um, you can say we, if we're talking about, um, like when we pulled the grapes in, but generally you kind of speak in a passive voice, which, you know, John said your whole life, you've been taught to speak in an active voice. This is your passive voice, uh, which I thought was interesting. You never say, I never say me, uh, we never say hot, it's warm. We never say cold. It's cool um so basically you never want to be too extreme uh which i thought was interesting because some of my my labels uh, at rockwall were uh were pretty extreme like i used my my artistic license and my creative writing skills to um let's see my uncle once told me he was reading over one of my labels he goes you can't submit that to ttb he goes. That reads more like a bodice ripping thriller than a backdoor <laughs> copy.
2: <laughs> a bodice ripping thriller. I really like the
3: wine. Yeah. Um,
1: it's really that seductive,
3: right? And so it's it's, it's been it's been a really um, an excellent exercise for me to think about the wine using this format and then kind of translating my thoughts into that format. Um, It's, it's, it's a pretty amazing process. Um, And Paul Draper is still the person who approves all of our labels.
1: No pressure.
3: Yeah. So we, so we, you know, write the labels, we send them to this amazing lady named Heidi, who formats them into the label uh, itself. And then we go through the editing process. And once we're happy with it, then it's sent to the executive committee, uh, which is includes Paul Draper and, uh, and Paul will very often have many edits. Um, and then we, you know, send it back around and then get to the final, final, final version, which it takes a long time. And like, you know, I wrote, I wrote 25 labels over the past year. There were a lot of labels to write. And so it's mm-hmm. it's quite the process. And so um just figuring out a strategy. And also kind of, I think I've learned to anticipate some of Paul's uh, comments. Mm -hmm. So like if I'm writing something like, oh, I don't know if Paul's going to like if I write this so I can kind of edit myself before
2: I send it. Nice. Uh, That's been helpful. So clearly not a job that uh, that will be taken over by chat GPT.
3: You know, what's funny. I did (laughs) an experiment uh, for my very last (laughs) label for the 22 uh, Three Valleys. I did ask Chat GPT to write the label, and it it it, it would not have passed Paul Draper standards. (laughs) Well, that's good
1: to that's good to know. Somebody's going to stand up for writers, writers,
2: journalists. We need. (laughs) Uh,
1: So, um, well, that speaks to the art of writing. I'd like to ask each of you about your other forms that are in your lives trust when it comes to music, we had a fun discovery over the weekend, I learned that um, you were with the Silverado pickups, a band in Napa Valley that I actually covered as a journalist um, back during a few performances. And I actually have photos of you in some of the band, you know, photos of the band that show you in there. So can you tell us about the musical side of you?
4: Yeah, that is my, just like Shauna, it's my other love. Um, Sometimes the greater love, sometimes the inferior, depending on where I am with each art. But uh, they definitely tie into each other, like Shauna was saying. I think just like her art and my art, I'll let her speak to that. But there is a connection. There's a similarity in music and winemaking that's inspiring. And music inspires me. Um in my art making, not only, I mean, sorry with my wine making, and um, you know, not only you know, listening to music while we're doing the wine work um, is a powerful thing. I feel like some of that energy goes into the wine. um mm-hmm. there's that whole thing. there's the the humbling of the um, learning of an instrument, and um, just like there's the humbling of learning to make wine. and um so that was my, you know, I've it, it, there's always been a link, um, but for music, you know, I, I I play the bass, I play the electric bass and the upright bass. Um, I started playing electric bass when I was 19 years old, um, and I kind of taught myself, I had played trombone from the time I was eight years old, all the way through high school, and so I could read bass clef music, so I just taught myself to convert the positions on um, the trombone to the bass. And uh, spent years kind of doing that, and never formally trained, um, but picked it up pretty quickly. And then when I went to to college, I ended up um, formally studying under a classical cellist um, to learn the upright bass, and played in the Humboldt Symphony for about five years, um, while moonlighting with some jazz bands and some reggae bands, and all it did me as much as I could do. I just loved it. Um, so. Um, and to this day you know i I still play i was with the silverado pickups for about 10 years which is uh, about the most fun i've ever had in music (laughs) so that was a band of uh, napa valley vintners including the ceo of silver oak uh, david duncan jeff gargiulo who owns a beautiful winery Um, a lot of guys we were all in the wine industry either as owners or makers in some regard and and we just had such a blast Um, it was and that's what music should be it's just all about having fun but we also took it seriously we you know we got pretty darn good we played bottle rock we played for emerald Legacy's events in new orleans and we jet set it around to different uh, places and we played some pretty big gigs and and had a blast doing it so i feel really lucky to have all that experience and uh and I'm not done. I, am, I just moved, though, so I'm trying to form a new band. It will just take a little while, but I'll get it.
2: Oh, I hope you do get back to it. When you were with um, the, the Silver Auto Pickups, what was your favorite song to play that really highlighted your bass talent?
4: So? Oh, for sure, it was a song that we wrote called Wine Country Cowboy.
2: Oh, yes, I know it.
4: It's on iTunes, <laughs> gotta check it out if you haven't uh, heard it, it, it <laughs> but that's an original song, and it's basically, the song is about a day in the life of a winemaker. And it's it's a really cool, fun tune, and everybody loved that one, and um, and that that's the winner for sure.
2: Oh, that song is great.
1: I loved that. It's such a fun song. And every time I listen to it, I will hear it in my head play for days. So it's the sign of a really, really good song.
2: (laughs) So true. Okay, Shauna, it's your turn. Your artistic expression is ceramics and sculpture.
3: Yes. Yeah. So my, um, my original trajectory was, uh, as an art teacher, and so I, I kind of knew that from early on when I started in my um, my art studies that I wanted to teach. And so I did a, um, a path forward where I was not only getting my undergraduate degree, but I was simultaneously getting my teaching degrees. So I am a certified California school teacher. And um, I had uh, several years where I was teaching art in the Oakland Unified School District. And I um, simultaneously while going to college or you know even while making wine at Rockball for the first 5 years I was making wine there I was still doing part time teaching um just cuz I it was so much fun and yeah it's I think you know things that carry over like from my art degrees I would say the biggest application in the winemaking world is I have two degrees in creative problem solving is really what that is. And trust can attest creative problem solving is, is, that's what we do. Um, I love that
2: expression.
3: Yeah. Creative
2: problem solving. That's It's
3: so true. You know, and people people have uh, throughout my life questioned um, whether an art degree is something that is frivolous or it's Mm -hmm. something that is, you know, important or something that, you know, our society should maybe have a little more respect for. Um, And for me, like I said, I mean, the creative problem solving aspect, you know, I went through seven years of art school, and it's a a lot of it was very brutal. I mean, there's, you know, there were critique classes that were three hours long, where the entire class was just, they're talking about my art piece for three hours.
0: Mm -hmm. And,
3: you know, and it's basically like, the whole class goes around and everyone talks about their problems with what you made oh, God. And can can you imagine doing that no. with the wines that we made like um, we do that on a level with wine critics but it's not three hours talking about this vintage of, right. of this and like like it was pretty brutal like wow. you, yeah like yeah. like you cry you cry in art school it's a oh, um, who knew? And So kind of talking about that humbling right like mm. You know, there's such a humbling to learning a new instrument or learning a new art like, you know, even, even just like, because I'm such a kinesthetic like work with my hands type of person that's why ceramics really resonated with me, and that's why I didn't go into glass blowing. Um, because, you know, I, I can't did my glass it. blowing class. And I'm like, Oh, don't touch it. Oh, don't touch it. Like I had to keep telling myself, like, don't touch the molten glass. So there's <laughs> definitely, um, you know, there's there's a brain thing that happens, but I was like, no, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not worthy with the glass blowing. I can't do it. That's um, funny. but yeah, it's been interesting. Um, you know, I've had, I've had the the fortunate opportunity to have my art displayed in in many different art shows. Um, one of the wine industry crossovers was um, I had some of my pieces displayed at the Napa Valley Art Museum alongside uh, Heidi uh, Peterson Barrett. Oh, which yeah, was she, cool, which was which yeah. was really cool because she's a painter, right?
1: Yeah, I was gonna say she paints. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah so that was a lot of fun and just kind of. I don't know, for me, like, talking to all of these other winemakers, like, you know, Tress and all of these people who have an artistic background, I think it really informs how you make wine. You know, I mean, you can make a textbook correct wine, according to UC Davis or UC Fresno textbooks, but it might be really boring. You know, like, if your wine doesn't have some soul and some love and some creativity, then it's, I don't, I don't really think we can call it successful.
1: Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, Sean, I have to ask you, um, you and I both share a, um, a fondness or love for another form of artistry, and that's perfume. Yes. And um, so I'm wondering how, you know, just being probably more aware of um, aromas and, um, scent families, how that informs your winemaking and probably your blending.
3: Right. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's, it's so taboo. Um, you know, I can't wear perfume at work. Um, and I am a person who's been collecting perfume, you know, since I was like 12 years old, I, I think I still have the same bottle of Tommy girl that I bought when I was I love like 14. It. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, how,
1: how, about how many bottles do you think you have in your collection?
3: Uh, over a hundred. Oh, good. You're like me. <laughs> yeah. No, and it's, it's pretty bad too. Cause now when I buy it, I'm like, this is frivolous. Like what, what am I doing? I'm never going to use this. Uh, but I do, you know, like at home, if I, it's the weekend or something, I'll spray some perfume on, but mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely applies to the way I think about um blending. Like like if I'm to put on a perfume, generally I would start with like a body spray, like maybe like a Bath and Body Works, like I love white tea and ginger. Their mm-hmm. white tea and ginger body spray, and then I might layer like cool water over it. So there's like different layers of aromatics, but they all have to work together, right? Like you can't put can't put like Japanese cherry blossom with um, like D- J'adore, Dior J'adore, right. like those, those yeah. don't work. They're like yeah. boring aromatics.
2: Well, it, all of that does speak to the fact that you guys have amazing noses, which really helps you in your job as in Mary's case, sommelier, and you guys as winemakers. We have a couple more wines that I want to make sure we get to. Yes, yes. yes um, Okay. So Trester, you brought a Montebello Chardonnay. And along with the estate Chardonnay, so tell me, how do you describe the differences between these two? So, with the Mont- Tell about the Montebello Chardonnay.
4: Yeah, so typically um, they're they're one and the same. They're just they're they're very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, we get this question all the time, and it's very hard to answer, even as the one who's now making them, because. It really comes down to the blending table and making those decisions and we do that with a panel uh, of tasters and we do that blind so we're unbiased uh, as to which blocks go into the blends because. We know every year the very top blocks are the best and they always go into the Montebello Chardonnay right, Mm -hmm. Um, but we taste them blind, so that we don't bias ourselves, because we see that block name and we know where that block is located so. It's very true, um, and so that that to me is really what justifies the quality and the style differences. They're both at the, they're both very very good wines. We just the Montebello is so limited; it's such a small production. Um, uh, you know, we're talking just a couple hundred cases in some time, in some years for the for the Montebello. Um, but there is a style difference um, to me: the Montebello versus the estate, the Montebello. Uh, is a little bit more rich and Mm -hmm. a little bit more weighted and a little more serious. Um, um, We talked about the layers that exist in the estate and you have the same layers here, but a little less reduction and a little bit more fruit driven Mm -hmm. with this more of an exotic richness to it. And definitely a a way, uh, way more um, mouthfeel, um, a creaminess, yeah. That exists, um, you know. the 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 acid is is beautiful, but whereas with the um, estate Chardonnay, it's that z- it's that zesty, zingy, mouthwatery. With the Montebello, the acid is more like um, its its job is to kind of balance the wine because it is so rich that it doesn't end with that popping acidity. It just kind of carries it through and puts everything into balance. If that makes sense, oh, it uh, makes total sense. It, yeah. it does. And it,
3: and trust. So you're you're crafting the Montebello Chardonnay to age a little longer than the estate. Is that correct? It,
4: yeah, exactly. So if you look at the back label, so for the estate Chardonnay, I wrote that um um that, that will be the estate will be enjoyable over the next six years, mm-hmm. and for the um for the Montebello, this exact example says uh, John wrote that he expects it to to um to age beautifully over the next 10 years so you know four years more and that's just one one vintage example uh, Mm -hmm. comparison so yeah in general yes for sure
1: yeah it's it's an absolutely gorgeous gorgeous wine and you're talking about the mouthfeel the creaminess is just incredible um it's like a lemon curd and just really lovely but you get some toasty notes um, and some tropical fruits like um, the pineapple and guava for sure but i also noticed kind of a slaty minerality too that's,
4: that's definitely the limestone and we tasted yeah. that estate as well but it's a different um profile of limestone in the in the montebello because like i said this fruit generally always comes from the very top and the top of the mountains limestone is different than in the middle of the mountain and that's that's what you're getting it is very slaty and it's um, a little bit of a um, you know flinty um, but a totally different minerality than the estate has in general
2: That's interesting I didn't know that we were mid mountain close to the uh, tasting room and, yeah. um, and and definitely the limestone is always the the key factor that you let lo- that i love you know it's the calling card of <laughs> rich <laughs> but i didn't realize that it was uh slightly different at the top oh uh, yeah. that's cool, cool. And we also have from you shauna we've got a Litton Springs zinfandel
3: yes yes and um about this baby of yours yeah and so you'll you'll notice um we don't label it as zinfandel we label it as Litton springs right um and uh, the 2021 is the one that we have and, uh, the current vintage that'll be released, um, early September. Okay. Um, and it's 72% Zinfandel, 15% Petite Sirah, 9% Carignan, 2% Alicante Boucher, 1% Sinso, 1% Kunwas, and many other friends that didn't make the label because they were less than 1%. Oh,
1: wow. <laughs> that is quite a blend.
3: It is quite a blend. And, you know, the vines vary in age. The The oldest block in Lytton Springs was planted in 1901. Mm. Um, and a lot of those vines are still thriving. Um, so there are more than 50 different blocks within our Lytton Estate vineyard. And each one is, um, it's a field blend. So each block, um, has has a different amount of varietals in it. So you might have Zin, Carignan, Petitsura, Alicante, Boucher, all in one um, block. And we will co-ferment everything that's in one block. So oh, wow. block one, block two, block three will all be fermented separately, but every vine from block one will be fermented together. Every vine from block two is fermented together. And we've gone through and we've mapped every single vine in the vineyard. So we know that this particular block is 9% Carignan, this particular block is 14% Carignana. And then we do the same thing that Tress was talking about um, through blind tasting. We will go through and we will decide which um, which tanks, which blocks are the absolute best and the absolute best A plus blocks go into Lytton Springs. And so sometimes it's forty blocks, sometimes it's thirty blocks. Uh, it just depends on the vintage and how successful the fermentations were and how the tannin and acid and all the profiles play together. Um, but it's it's really exciting. I mean, there's a it's a lot of action during harvest. and it really is like <laughs> you're tasting tanks and you are determining the future of that block. Is this block litten worthy? Or does it get um, thrown into our our big blend, which is our um, Three Valleys, Mm -hmm. which is, um, you know, in and of itself, a pretty phenomenal entry level wine because it sees, you know, it sees press fractions from um, Lytton Springs, some stuff from Montebello. Uh, It's a a really good wine. But um, yeah, having the opportunity to say this is the very best, only the best goes in here. And, and I guess oh, sorry, go ahead.
2: I was just going to say, with all the different varietals you've included in there, yeah, it would be unfair to to call it just Zinfandel because it's so much more.
3: Right? Yes. Yeah, we feel that that doesn't um, really represent what it is. You yeah. know, it's uh, so we call it um, after the vineyard, Luton Springs. Yeah, yes.
1: it it's just an incredibly complex wine. Um, the thing I noticed right off the bat was has this incredible vibrant, Burgundy velvet color. Um, Lots of spice um, and herbs and um, I get hibiscus and peony floral notes. um, But, you know, I was it's it's not a huge wine, you know, especially with Zinfandel. It's easy to go over the 15 percent alcohol mark. But this is at 14 percent, I believe. Right. Yeah.
3: Yeah, it is. This uh, this particular vintage is 14.3. Um, And, you know, it's not just a function of our philosophy. Ridge really doesn't want our Zinfandel's, um, our Zinfandel portfolio to land in the 15% zone. We really are prefer the 14% zone. But not only that, we do all native fermentations. And the native fermentations have really specific parameters for what they need in order to be successful. So If we pick something that's 24.2 bricks, that will start fermenting. And we know that at that range, uh, the pH is going to be appropriate and everything is going to be appropriate for a native fermentation to complete. Now, if we pick the fruit and it soaks up to 25 and a half that's going to be an inhospitable environment Mm -hmm. for our native yeast and that fermentation will not finish oh interesting so that means that we need to course correct at the very beginning and do a water and acid addition to anything that's over 25 bricks in order to bring it down to about 24 and a half and nothing over um and when we bring it down to 24 and a half bricks we know our fermentations are going to be successful they're going to finish they're going to go through malolactic anything that we didn't course correct at the beginning. If it was above 25 bricks guaranteed, it's going to end up with residual sugar and it's not going to finish. Mm. So yep. it's, it's not only a function of our philosophy. It's also pragmatic.
2: Sure. Right. That's oh, It's very yeah. interesting. With well, speaking of philosophies, one of the things that I find interesting is the notion that you guys, that, that Ridge, the winemaking is labeled pre-industrial. Is that a Ridgeism? And can you explain what that means for our listeners? Um, I think it speaks to the philosophy behind what you guys are doing. And also, again, gets back to that integrity piece.
4: Yeah. So I love this. Um, And this was a big draw for me to Ridge um, when I discovered this. It's, It's so... What I'm all about, it, it really, you know, to summarize it in a in a nutshell, it's it's really just um, like Shauna said earlier, being being good, being doing the right thing. It's just it's minimalistic vinification is what I call it, but it means the same thing. It's really all about um, you know doing the least amount of interjection to the wine as possible, and so that what the consumer ultimately tastes is the vineyard um and that's what we're trying to do and that was Paul's philosophy from the very beginning and what that meant was um you're using techniques that go back um hundreds and hundreds of years um even more than that and uh um you know where you're just taking a product from nature and naturally letting it turn into a byproduct and um and that's really all we're doing. Um, if we do do anything, even as minute as adding water and acid like Shauna just mentioned, sometimes we do, but if we do, it's gonna go on the label. Yep. And so that kind of summarizes, uh, there's so much to that question, but um, in general, I would say, um, you know, Sean, you can probably add to that, but um, I think that's generally what, what we're after.
3: Right. And I think you know, i I heard Paul talk about this, and I think he summarized it so beautifully. Um, nature can make a far more interesting wine than I can mm. and that. And I love that, you know? I mean, when you really think about all of the, you know, the philosophies at Ridge and the way that they align, it's so true. Um, and it's interesting because i've I've always thought about my art making in that way, where, like if I have a block of clay, I've always felt like this block of clay knows its destiny. It knows what it wants to be. And I'm sort of the catalyst to help mold it into whatever it's supposed to be. And so I thought it was really quite brilliant that that philosophy is applied to winemaking here. Um, it's very soulful, you know, mm-hmm. it's, um, it's deep and it's beautiful. And um, yeah, just like Tress, I I love that.
1: And I remember at the luncheon, um, Paul was talking about climate change, how we're all facing it, but he um, really believes that in following these techniques, the native fermentations and and all, um, no additions, and absolutely necessary, um, we're going to um, help Ridge adapt as the climate changes.
0: We're all dealing with, with climate change. Hopefully, some of these same techniques, uh, and avoidance of, of additives and processing. Uh, if we can raise this quality of grapes in these vineyards, uh, I've, I certainly po- hope is is what we're... And certainly, with Shauna and with Tress, we have the chance to do that. I mean, they are... They have such great experience, and their their openness to what we're doing compared with whatever however they might, might have dealt with whether it was Zinfandel or Cabernet um their openness to taking what we've learned and working with it themselves uh gives me great hope for the continuing this into the future
1: that is so wonderful and you know I think you know that guiding light of being following these pre-industrial, if you will, techniques, um, has really been the a, a, a secret sauce for Ridge's success, in a way.
2: Well, and you guys also are in the vineyards, the organic farming methods, you guys are using the efforts you, the incredible efforts Rich is taking to be good stewards of the land and take care of those vines. Um, I think that also speaks to the future and hopefully we'll see you guys through, (laughs) you know, none of this, whether it's the threat of fires or too much heat, uh, it's not fun and there's some, could be some challenging days ahead for, for winemakers in California. Absolutely, absolutely.
3: Well, and I, I've always, I've a, I appreciate that Ridge is leading the charge on that. You know, I mean, in France, organic farming is the standard practice. It's what they do. They know it's best for the land. They know it's best for the people. Um, and Ridge espouses that same philosophy. And you know, I do too. I, I purchase organic produce. I don't want pesticides on my food um and so why would i want pesticides on the grapes made into wine that i drink
1: exactly exactly so going forward for both of you
4: um
1: what are your hopes desires um direction you see you go in with ridge
4: Huh, that's yeah that's I've, that keeps me up at night that very question <laughs> Um, it, it's there's a lot of hopes. There's a lot of desire. The first hope is that um, my wine, our wines that we are making um, now, are are accepted and not and not over dissected. Um, a lot of people know and are watching. And one of my worries is that when there's change in a company, people just look for any way to pick it apart they can and that that always worries me it's it's kind of the critique side of my brain worrying about that and not just it's hard not to so uh, my hope is that the wines are accepted and there's a seamless transition here as our wines go into the market that's what we're after and um, if we achieve that with our first releases i think it's only going to get easier and easier
3: I completely agree. Um, Seamless is the exact word that I would have used. And um, I think both Tress and I hope that um, in people tasting and receiving our wines, that their reactions are, wow, this is a really great Ridge wine. Not, oh, wow, Shauna did a good job or Tress did a good job. Just, wow, this is a really excellent Ridge wine. Must have been a great vintage. Right. Just Um, just
2: seamless love that I before we let you guys go I have to ask do you get to uh, work with one another often or are you kind of into your your different planets and I know so John only is the director of winemaking operations Paul winemaker emeritus is that the Paul Draper winemaker emeritus is that his title he's chairman of the board yes, yes okay and then you guys are, again, Montebello, Litton Springs, but how much uh, trust or Shauna time is there?
3: We, we get to work together a pretty good deal, which uh, I'm excited about. Um, I think one of John's um, goals um, is to make sure that trust and I work in tandem and it's not two completely separate entities, but that you know, the fact that we have three winemakers on board, there's, there's Tress, there's me and there's John Olney. And between the three of us, you know, three heads are better than one. So just kind of making sure that all of us know what the other one is doing. And, um, you know, if if I want Trust to taste, you know, my Zen, because I've always loved the Zinfandel's that Trust has made. So really value his nice. input on those. Um, and trust knows I'm obsessed with Chardonnay, so uh, I'm a good tool for tasting Chardonnay. But um, it's been really pretty awesome to have another winemaker on board, and especially someone who I respect and enjoy working with so much.
4: Yeah, it's it's been a blast, and um, and I love since day one. Um, you know, with both of us on board we've gone back and forth. And in fact, Shauna sits on the blind panel for the Montebello tasting. She's one of the panelists and, and I go and taste their blends with her and John at Lytton Springs. And some of the, you know, I make the Geyserville Zinfandel here. So I'm down, down, I'm sorry, up. I'm not, I'm still getting used to they I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm there visiting uh, uh, those vineyards. And so of course the, the winery's right there. And so we're, we, we are tasting each other's wines to help each other quite often, and it's really fun.
1: That's so great. Yeah,
2: it, you just keep it all in the family.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> Wonderful.
2: Well, trust you're getting in, Shawna Rosenblum. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this conversation with you. It makes me feel so good about the future of Ridge, knowing that such uh, cool people, uh, artistic, talented, hardworking people and are passionate. Making- and passionate are making these wines I know you have busy days so we don't want to keep you any longer but we sure thank you for being part of sip-sip parade Sip, today
1: yes and you know based on the wines I'm tasting you know I think I'm so looking forward to your next releases and especially when you have your hands fully in the vintage from you know beginning to end that that I'm looking forward to
3: Thank you so much for having us. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, anything 2022 vintage and on check it out. That's us. Yay! <laughs> Great. All right. Well,
1: thanks. And a big sip, sip, parade Cheers to you both. Cheers.
2: Cheers. Bye. Thanks again. Well, Mary Orlin, what a treat to talk with Trester and Shauna. And I'm so impressed with how down to earth both of them are. They have big jobs and they are stepping into big shoes and carrying on a great tradition. And I have no doubt they're going to just shine in their roles. Absolutely.
1: I mean, they they just seem to really mesh really well with the Ridge philosophy and um, with the people on the team already and you know they as they both said they've only been there about a year each so I think um, we can expect even greater more wonderful wines coming out from Ridge and um, the longevity to go at least another 60
2: years but we're not going to put any pressure on them (laughs) not going to dissect it
1: (laughs) no we're not going to have a three-hour discussion about one wine (laughs) that
2: ends in tears (laughs) Oh, I can't even imagine how they were so much fun to talk with. Yes, And, And we thank you so much for joining us for this edition of Sip Sip Hooray podcast.
1: Yes. So be sure to follow our show on whatever podcast platform you are listening on, please go give us a rating and a review we would love it and it helps other people discover our podcast and something else we're doing is we're on Substack yes you can see um if you go to Substack you can sign up for a subscription and you'll get notified as soon as one of our new episodes drops so you don't want to miss that plus you can see or listen to actually all of our Episodes that are um, now on Substack as well as on our website, sipseparepodcast dot com.
2: Yeah, the goal is just to make it even easier for you to find our podcast and to share it with other people. So, head to Substack, head to sipseparepodcast dot com. Find us on social media, but we appreciate you guys listening along and if rating us, commenting, and then sharing it with your friends.
1: Absolutely. And do follow us on social media. We are Sip Sip Hooray podcast on Instagram and Facebook and Sip Sip Hooray, the number one on Twitter.
2: All right, Mary Orlin. Well, this was a fun day. Looking forward to the next time we get to chat. Cheers to you and Sip Sip Hooray.
1: Cheers, Mary B. Thank you.